America's founding fathers believed their vision, the city upon a hill, could only succeed with a special people in a special place. Over 240 years later, we the people, our American story is still unfolding. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every Friday as I spotlight those who embody the American values of faith, courage, and heroism. You will be uplifted, inspired, proud, and humbled to call yourself an American. American history is more than history. It's personal. Craig Gustafson is a 26-year military veteran who serves primarily on and around submarines. He was born with submarine in his blood, his father also a career submariner. Craig's favorite tour was undoubtedly the two years he was stationed in Italy at a submarine repair activity. He also served in Kuwait and spent some time in Iraq when he was voluntold to help out with the Army with their logistics in 2005. He learned a lot and made lifelong friends there, but definitely preferred his submarines. After retirement, Craig worked in the defense industry in logistics and project management, now working to build his own new venue. As a recovering social misfit, Craig is now working to help others escape their social awkwardness too, teaching people skills based on material from the science of people. His amazing wife, Teresa, may be the world's most patient person, and they have four adult children between them who they love to spend as much time with as they are able. Craig loves to play golf and does so badly, but with great enthusiasm. He also loves to tinker with cars and home improvement projects, but his wife may prefer that he sticks to golf. In the short term, it tends to be less expensive. Craig is building a Facebook page titled Escaping Social Awkwardness, and you can reach him at hello at escapingsocialawkwardness.com. I can imagine no more rewarding a career, and any man who be asked in this century what he did to make his life worthwhile, I think can respond with a good deal of pride and satisfaction. I served in the United States Navy, John F. Kennedy. Episode 4, Craig's American Story. So today I have a fabulous person. His name is Craig, and let me tell you three things that I admire about Craig. Three of the many things that I admire about Craig. He is very outspoken about his faith, his family, and this country. And I admire that so much because it's a scary thing to do today. And Craig makes no secret about how he feels about all three of these important things in his life. And I admire that so much. Um, I have never met Craig in person, but I have known him for how many months is it now? Six? At, at least six. About six months. Craig and I were in a large group of uh, students in a program called Made to Do This. And I was blessed enough to have Craig be put into a very small pod with me. There was myself and three others, including Craig, where we would get together and discuss how we were doing on our homework. And Craig is very easy to like and he has been a great friend in those six months. So I am really grateful to have Craig on today. Well, thanks, friend. I mean, <laughs> um, maybe I'm just, you're, you're kind of not quite right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's okay, right? That is okay. You know, all of us are a little bit nuts. It's just a matter of what are we nuts for or what are we nuts about. <laughs> that's right. So, Craig, I want to start off and tell me a little bit about your people. Tell me about your family, where or how you grew up, where they're from, 
and maybe a little bit about how they felt about America? Well, my mom is from a little bitty small town in Connecticut, which is Thomas, and a half away from the submarine base in Groton, Connecticut, which will matter in a minute. My dad is from Beloit, Wisconsin, who didn't want he didn't want to didn't uh, didn't want to go to college right away and didn't want to stay in town and be a factory worker, so he joined the service. So that's how he wound up in Groton. My dad was a submarine sailor. His best friend was also a submarine sailor. The two of them married twin sisters. Oh wow. <laughs> and we're lifelong friends. I lost my dad, I guess, about well, coming up on two years ago now. But uh, submarines are a genetic defect in my family. When I was a young kid, we lived, I guess, for eight or ten years in South Carolina, which was really cool for me because the first time I ever saw or went on a submarine, my dad was the chief of the boat. And I was in third or fourth grade. And I knew right away that it was fascinating and it was something that I wouldn't mind doing, which turned out to be a good thing because uh, when I graduated high school, I was a smart kid, but I didn't do exceptional well in high school because I was one of those kids that they do homework if you could show up and you could get an A or B on exams. I didn't see much of the point. So, And my father was a very strong personality, just like me, so it was time for Craig to go. Uh, I was actually on delayed entry and wasn't having a good time at home. So I told the recruiter, hey, when you have a slot you need to fill, call me. And two days later, the phone rang and off I went to boot camp. I did 26 years in the military. I loved it so much, largely because of the community, the people that you serve with. I spent the majority of my time either on submarines or in submarines or in repair facilities around submarines. Tell me what that's like living on a submarine. That is so foreign, I think, to most people. We have no clue because when you, when you look at a submarine and what you see on movies, it, and I'm sure it is, it looks so cramped. It's little, but so am I. So it's, <laughs> I, I, I'm the perfect size. Uh, I, I'm, I'm all five, five foot four and... <laughs> With a, with, a, with a two to someone much larger. But it's interesting because, you know, when you, when you shut the doors, it's just one long day. Actually, easier a long time ago, back before you had email and all kinds of ways to keep in touch with family, because you were just gone. You are isolated. You didn't get mail. You didn't get email. It's always nice to get something from home, and we would get, like, 30... 30 word messages from home, but we couldn't send anything back. And of course they were all screened. So if there was bad news in there, you didn't get it. Really? Oh they yeah. Were all screened? They were all screened. I had no idea. Well, emails now go into the guys that are screened, but you know, those guys that are still trying to, trying to be part of their household and run it and make financial decisions and stuff from, you know, 4,000 miles away, which doesn't work. Sometimes it was easier just to be completely cut off and do what you were doing and it was just one long day. How does it feel to submerge? I don't you know. Went up in an airplane, <laughs> shut all the windows. <laughs> <laughs> Except it's kind of like landing first and taking off at the end. Oh my gosh. How far down does a submarine go? What is the cruising depth, so to speak? Well, greater than 400 feet. Wow. 
And how long do you stay down? The longest I was ever underwater was over 100 days. No way. Are you kidding me? No, no you're not. I'm not. I'm not kidding you at all. Are you serious? We were supposed to be gone for about 80 days. And uh, we got a message saying that we weren't going to be pulling in as planned. And we needed to start rationing food. It re- you really, you're not kidding. You were under. No, I'm not, I promise I'm not kidding you at all. And you did not come up once? How does that work for fuel? How does, how's that possible? Well, that's the nice thing about nuclear power. Mm, okay. Yeah. See, I'm stupid. So I no, you're not stupid. You're not educated. about. I it. don't understand Just, those things. Wow. The, the only, unless something breaks and you don't have parts to fix it and you can't live without it. The only other reason that you would pull in is because you're out of food. You make your own air. And when you're living in that close of quarters, do people start to get irritated? <laughs> you know, it's amazing because generally they do a pretty good job of figuring out who works with well with who and who doesn't. And I think I saw one fight my whole 26 years. Usually if you don't get along with people, you just leave them alone. Did you ever feel claustrophobic down there? Like, I got to get out of here, and you know you can't because you're 400 feet underwater? Well, only once. Uh, Someone played a gag on me, and I wasn't impressed. We were out doing uh, weapon certification, and torpedoes nowadays are all wire-guided. So when we shut the door after we did the wire clearance maneuver, it didn't didn't clear all the way. So there was part of the wire still sticking in. So someone had to climb out, go out in the torpedo tube and go cut it off. And then they cycled the tube again and, and, it, and it was good. But one of the guys thought it would be funny to shut the door on me while I was in there. That was unfun. I was angry. Oh, I was, I was so angry I couldn't see. So I was angry enough that because I'm a small guy, I went in the torpedo tube head first and came out head first and decked the guy who did it to me. How did they, he was senior to me. How do they make sure you get the exercise? How does that work in a submarine where you stay physically fit? Do they have a room or what? How does that work? A lot of guys don't. Well, that would seem like very unhealthy that that's not what they would want, that they'd want to keep you physically fit somehow because if you're underwater for 100 days, wow. Well, yeah, I mean, you... You stand watch for six hours, you work for six hours, you have six hours to sleep and, and rest, and you get up and you do it again. So you were 18 years old when you joined then? 19. 19. And you said you were in for 26 years? Is that what you said? 26 years and a day. Okay. So um, were you planning on retiring then, or had you wanted to stay in longer? I just stayed in forever if they let me. I came up on high year tenure. I had an opportunity to stay. I was going to go back and be uh, the command master chief of a submarine. But uh, I was going to come back off deployment, go finish the senior enlisted academy, and they were going to send me right back on deployment. And I decided that I liked my wife more than I liked being deployed. So, <laughs> can you, speaking of deployment, can you tell us maybe some of the places you've traveled for uh, deployment or anything that you can talk about? Well, I spent 10 years with the, or 10 months with the Army that they voluntold me to go spend time with the army while I was on shore duty in 2005. I just met Teresa not long before that. So 
that they sent me off to, to Kuwait and I spent some time in Iraq while I was there. Uh, all that really did was validate my original career choice. <laughs> but I was stationed in Italy for two years. Oh, wow. Which was amazing. It was definitely the most, other than my family didn't go with me, but it was the most amazing place I could ever imagine living. And, and had I not been married, I probably would never come back. I had a niece and her husband, they were stationed at Aviano. Yeah, I was in La Maddalena. So off the island, there's a little archipelago there in uh, Sardinia. There used to be a submarine tender there. So I was stationed in, in that area and it was amazing. But other than that, I mean, I was stationed all over the country. I spent some time in Charleston, a bunch of time in San Diego, a lot of time in Groton, Connecticut. And my first tour, I was actually in Hawaii. Oh, that's not too bad. It was the, actually the most lonely day of my entire life was a Christmas day in Hawaii. Oh, it's so sad. Well, here's what happened. I was, it was probably my second year in the service and it was Christmas day and I called home from my friend's house. He had a bunch of us over for Christmas dinner, but I called home and my high school friends were there who were in college saying hi to my folks when I called and it was snowing. Oh, yeah. And I just, I was, you know, standing in a room full of squids. It was probably 80 degrees outside, and I felt completely alone. Oh, you're making me so sad, Craig. Well, it, it, it actually turned out to be a good thing, because once I got married and had a family, I made sure that nobody didn't have a place to go for the holidays. The whole time I was in, if, if there was a holiday and we were in port, I would make multiple trips to the base or wherever to go pick people up to have Thanksgiving, Christmas, whatever dinner. So I guess that answers if there were times when you were homesick, were there other times or longer periods that you were homesick? And if so, how did you deal with that? Not really. I think largely just because I did my best to stay busy. A lot of guys spent a lot of time watching movies and doing stuff like that. And I really didn't. I kind of kept to myself and I worked a lot because the more work I could get done while we were gone, the less I had to do once we got home. So I could go home. What kind of person do you think does it take to be on a submarine? You have to be a little bit off. <laughs> I don't know that they still do it, but when I joined, they actually sent you for mental testing. Oh, okay. That makes it, it, sense. I mean, you have to be pretty comfortable with who you are and not mind so much. In it's not so much in closed spaces because they're big enough. It's just a matter of. You can't escape. <laughs> you, you have to. We had a guy once that, that wanted to try and get out and you know, they, had, they had to sedate him for a couple of days. Oh, wow. Things happen. How, how's I mean, the food on a submarine? Amazing. Really? Other than, well. Yeah, we're fed pretty well, but it winds up being a lot of the same things over and over. Uh, the food was better earlier in my career. At the end of the at the end of my career, I mean, we ate a lot of boneless, skinless chicken because it was cheap and there wasn't any waste. There wasn't any bones to get rid of or anything <laughs> like that. So, and one one of my friends, Tucker, I, I love him to death. He was my supply officer my last uh, couple years on the USS Topeka. 
but I retired and, and he got out of the service and he went to work for a medical like robotic surgery company. And he was visiting San Diego and he came to visit me. And I had another friend over and I made him a gi- him and I a gigantic steak. And I fed Tucker boneless, skinless chicken off the grill. <laughs> my friend thought that I'd lost my mind and I was just the meanest person ever. And Tucker thought I was hilarious, but. That just, is pretty funny. That's, that's, how, that's how bubbleheads get back at each other, I guess. But, so is it worth the sacrifice to serve in the military specifically for yourself? Was it worth the sacrifice? And if so, why? I would do it again tomorrow if I physically could. I think that there's something to being part of a group of like-minded, dedicated, really smart people figuring out problems for yourself, being a part of something that's much bigger than you. You know, you, you go to sea and it's just you. You know, a, a submarine at sea is basically like her own little country. You know, you have the guy in charge, you have the workers, you have the people who administer and all these other things, but you're on your own. How many people are on a submarine? It depends on what you're doing. But generally, submarine crews were, at that point, were probably 110 people. 12 guys were chiefs. There'd be about 12 officers and everybody else were the, you know, younger enlisted guys. And we used to drive some of the other Navy crazy because... I can't say that we got overly familiar, but we weren't nearly as formal as most military organizations are. Probably because we spent so much time together and there was no one but us. You know, I mean, you'd never be on a first name but the captain or anything like that. He was the skipper. Um, A lot of people you called by their title, but we were pretty, pretty ragtag. I mean, uh, yeah, you had to be clean shaven and and have a regulation haircut and everything when you pulled in. But a lot of the time, you know. By the time 100 days is over. <laughs> yeah, by the time 100 days is over. We would do, we would do You're stuff probably looking like, worse for wear, right? <laughs> well, I mean, you'd buy, you'd buy $25 that went to the Christmas fund or whatever, and you didn't have to shave. <laughs> or, you only, or you only had to shave every so often. Yeah. I grew a beard a couple times, but I, I couldn't take it. My, probably because... In, in high school, before I left for school, if I didn't shave, my mom would chase me back in the house with a broom. <laughs> just <laughs> so I so I just grew up that way. And even at sea, when I didn't have to shave, I'd shave every couple of days anyway. I grew a beard a couple of times, and it came in red, really? which is weird for a guy who's blonde and gray. But whatever. So really? that is yeah. really strange. It's just I don't I don't know. But were you were you able to go on any, I don't know what you would call them, like the carriers or whatever, to watch like the Navy pilots take off, anything like that? Oh, I watched them from underwater a few times. Really? Yeah. From underwater? How do you from watch underwater. them from underwater? You can, how do you know they're taking off? From where? You can watch it through the periscope. But is there a carrier nearby? Is that why you're watching it or what? Well, a bunch of the time we were, we spent time being uh, escorts for carriers. Wow going out and making sure that there weren't bad people around the place where we wanted to put carriers. I've always wanted to watch the Navy pilots take off. It seems so, you know, incredible, like they're supermen or whatever to do what they do. But you said you went up in one, haven't you? Have you been I, in- well, I, I've never been a, a, up in a fighter jet. Okay. I spent some time on a C-130 and that was awful. What's a C-130 for a stupid? A, a car, it's a cargo plane. 
Oh, yes, yes, yes. I think... So I was in full battle dress because I was in Kuwait getting ready to go to Iraq. So, you know, it's 125 degrees. Oh, yeah. Full body armor. And you get on this plane and you take off and you go to whatever altitude and you freeze to death because it's cold because you're wet and now it's cold and you're wet. And then you land again and it's hotter than hell. Oh, it's... Yeah, not, not my not my cup of tea. I think if I remember, my husband, his dad is a colonel. And one year, they actually, I think, flew on one of those to Hawaii. Do you, do you ride backwards in those? I sat sideways facing the middle. Okay. I think they flew on one of those to Hawaii because they were able to get really cheap rates. I don't think the military does anything like that anymore. But he took the whole family back to Hawaii on one of those. That was probably on a C-17 or some other cargo plane. Yes. All I know is they were seated backwards, and but they had an airline attendant and everything given meals. Yeah, that'd probably be a sort of a C5 Galaxy or some gigantic thing. My husband said they had no windows. You really couldn't see anything. Oh, C-130 definitely had windows. Okay. All right. Yeah. That is crazy. That is crazy. How, how does your wife feel about your military experience and your family, your children? Well, it, I didn't meet Teresa until I was already... 18 years into the service. So she didn't have to put up with the garbage that, that my first wife did. It's hard on families. It's hard on marriages. Oh, I, I don't know how true it is, but I heard rumors that the only people in the military with a higher divorce rate than submariners was the SEALs. Really? Well, yeah, I can. Yeah. You hear that all the time about the SEALs. Yeah. But it's not so bad now as it was when I was young, but when I was young, we were gone all the time. I think it was outside of Hornport one day or one year for almost 300 days. We weren't at sea the whole time, but I mean... But you were not at home. We weren't home. Because... But I've been some incredibly cool places. Yeah. I mean, I've been to Israel three or four times, Italy, Spain, Cyprus, Crete... Australia, Japan. I've been all over the world. But not only does that put a huge strain on you, it puts a huge strain on who you leave at home. It does. It, it's hard. But like everything else, you, you learn to deal with it and you do the best with it you can. I would, I would go and I would have a specific budget that I could spend while, while I was gone. And I would take it in cash. And I usually came home with money in my pocket. <laughs> Just, I'm not a... You're not a spender? Well, didn't spend a lot of time at port. Not a whole lot to buy on the submarine. No, there's, the not, submarine a, there's, there's not a whole lot to buy on a submarine. No gift shop? Not unless you wanted to buy submarine stuff, and I had enough of that already. So, How do your kids feel about dad being a veteran? It's interesting because uh, I took a couple of them down after Teresa and I got married. And they were, they were all adults at that point. And my youngest... Well, Teresa's youngest, Sean, is a foot taller than me, so he's six foot four. And he hit his head at least a dozen times while we were down there. He's like, how the hell do you do that? I'm like, you know, once once you knock your melon on something pretty hard (laughs) once or twice, you know it's there. You learn, otherwise it's on you, right? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) You know, and we had uh, had VIPs down once upon a time, and we ran drills for them. So the guys, you know, they ran like a fire drill. So the guys got all dressed up and, and ran to the end of the room. And they said, look, very bunch of football players, you know, dodging stuff because you knew where the valves and the ceiling were and yeah. everything you were going to knock yourself on. So it was like an obstacle course. You just don't even think about it. It's crazy. But so it's are, mo- 
Are most people on a submarine shorter or not really? You know, I don't know that they have the, have the height restrictions that, that they did when I was young. I remember on my first submarine, my best friend was probably six foot six. Wow. We sleeping in the torpedo room at that point. So we're sleeping next to torpedoes. But the good thing about that was we didn't have to hot rack. What's that? There's, there's two beds and three guys. Okay. But one of them's always on watch. But you have to rotate depending on. Okay. And you have to put your stuff in different places. Okay. So, so you're know, always take, playing. Take math. your blanket with you kind of thing. So You're always playing musical bunks or whatever. Or? It was musical bunks. <laughs> but if you slept in the torpedo room, at least you got your own. Yeah. But we stood watch together. And I swear to you, for 80 straight days, he would get out of his bunk and whack his head on the same box over and over. I'm like, Tom, you're just going to have permanent brain damage. <laughs> but... <laughs> But, I mean, that's just what we did. I stood watch with another guy. We were port and starboard, which means we were six on, six off. So we had the same bed. So I would get out of it, go eat, go relieve him on watch so he could go eat and go to bed. And we would go back and forth. Well, I would think it. you have to be a certain, definitely a certain type of person to be on a submarine. I can't imagine, I, I can't imagine that you didn't have more people go a little bit Lulu <laughs> on there. Well, we're all a little, we're all a little tweaked <laughs> to begin with. But. Well, I'm surprised. How about this? That there weren't more people that had to be sedated. <laughs> no, no, no. But you have to be calm, don't you? I mean, you can't have hotheads on a submarine, can you? There's, a, there's always a few. I, I used to be a hothead when I was young. Really? Oh, well, I had a horrible temper. I would not even think that about you. Oh, yeah, my mouth got my nose broken for me a couple of times when I was young. Are you kidding? <laughs> no. Wow. Not okay. at sea, but not at sea. But yeah, just, yeah my, my mouth got my nose broken for me a couple of times during my lifetime. That is too funny. Is that okay if I'm, I say I'm, that? <laughs> if, if people had to come up with a thousand adjectives to describe me, bashful would be nowhere, nowhere among them. Well, your nose looks pretty straight. Well, yeah, it's going to be... Got a big bulge right there, though. But. You know what? My dad broke his nose when he was a teenager. He had a football thrown at him or whatever, and it broke his nose. And I'm going to tell you, he was so <laughs> afraid to get it fixed. My dad had a broken nose until the day he died. He never, anything with mine. His was, was very obviously crooked, uh, off kilter. It was not straight. It's kind of funny. He was too afraid to get it fixed. So, yeah. Uh, needless well, I didn't to, want it broken again. I got a bloody nose like nothing you've ever seen. Oh, but, needless to say, my dad was a snorer for the rest of his life. Oh, yeah. So my poor mom had to put up with that. So that's hilarious. I'm not usually too bad, but if I'm really tired, yeah, I'll... My wife will just go sleep in the other room. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, Craig, can you think of anything that you want to talk about so far that we haven't yet? Anything about your military experience? You know, one of, one of the questions that I heard someone say was, when was the first time that you really had in your heart that something happened and you were just incredibly proud of America? I remember... I remember when I was a kid, my dad was getting back surgery for a herniated disc. And I had to walk from the hospital to the dentist office. And while I was in the dentist chair was when Ron Reagan got shot. I, re I remember that. I remember my mom waking me up when I was little, little, 
like in grade school, grade school to watch one of the Apollo launches on TV. I was the duty chief petty officer on 9-11 on the USS Dallas. And because I was the head logistics guy on the ship, the captain made me get relieved so we could start getting stuff to put the boat back together because we were in, in, a, in an availability at the time because we thought we were going to go right to sea. And I've never been as proud of America as I was on 9-12. And I guess, especially right now with all the strife and the divide and the, the left versus right and who's right and who's wrong. and Although we have our opinions about that, right, Craig? <laughs> well, we do. And most, re most retired most retired military people have probably the same, have similar beliefs as you and I do. Does it make you sad? Just, just the bitterness is just, just awful. You know, the people attacking protests or people attacking people in the streets. You know, these Antifa thugs are nothing but a bunch of damn cowards. You know, they, they won't attack people in mass. They wait till there's one person and five of them jump them. I mean, if that's, that's not America. How do you think we've lost our way because, well, I don't feel like I've lost my way. I don't feel like you've lost your way, but there are so many, so. and they're the younger ones. I feel like mostly how have we lost our way? How have we forgotten what America is and how blessed we are to live here? That's what I don't think people understand is how lucky they are to live in this country. How have we lost our way? Well, less than 1% of people serve in the military anymore. I don't think most people have ever left the country to see how the rest of the world actually lives. You know, when you've seen adject poverty, you know, with people living in cardboard. Did you see that? I did. When you go someplace, a third world country where dads are actually selling their daughters into sexual slavery to feed their families, their parents and their grandparents. That happens outside of America because there isn't any jobs. There isn't any employment or opportunity. And it's, I think that we've reached a point where people have picked sides and the people on both sides in order to retain power and retain control have actually fed that frenzy of people not talking to each other and not being willing to compromise. It's, you know, when I was a kid and Ronald Reagan was in office, he and, and Tip O'Neill were bitter political rivals. You know, the Speaker of the House and the President. I found out later that the two of them used to have dinner once a week. We, Americans agree on 80, 85% of problems and we've allowed issues on the fringes on one end or the other to polarize us rather than working on the things that we can do together. Why not find something where you can benefit everybody, work on it, build some trust and go from there. Nowhere in the mainstream media have I heard that that Donald Trump has been nominated for four or five Nobel Peace Prizes this year. You know, they said that it was impossible and it would never happen that there would be peace in the Middle East, but he's, we've made great strides to where that may actually be a reality. Even the Palestinians are talking about going back into legitimate talks with Israel. Saudi Arabia may normalize relations with them. The UAE already has, I think Jordan has. I mean, places that used to harbor terrorists are actually normalizing relations with, with Israel and bringing peace to that part of the world. I mean, if they can do it, damn it, they've been fighting for thousands of years. What the hell is wrong with us? Really? 
why can we not find some common ground that benefits everybody rather than picking a couple issues that are emotionally engaging? I mean, part of the reason they do it is because humans are not capable of rational thought when they're angry or afraid, right? Mm-hmm. So as long as you can keep people in a frenzy there and they don't actually go look at what the other side has to say and just one, watch one source of news and believe that the, everything that they hear there is true, whether it's misrepresented or partially true or yeah. back in the day we had to go to more than one source just to write a book report, right? I know. Don't kids have it so easy today? How many encyclopedias did you have? Well, I, I, don't, I don't know that they do because... Well, as far as that goes, how's that? Oh, yeah. We, we had to go to a Rolodex or something yeah. and, or, <laughs> and find, find sources. Yeah. Now they go to Google. Yeah. That isn't always open to dissenting views either. Yeah. So if you go there and someone is skewing the views or the information that's available or censoring it, you still don't get the real deal. You don't find other places to go listen to dissenting opinions. And it's just like a traffic accident. If you think about it, you know, who saw the traffic accident? What did you see? There's more than, more than one view and more than one opinion. And you have to figure out what the truth is between them, right? What part of the argument you're in or what you saw, you didn't all see, you may not have seen the whole thing. You might not have seen why it happened. I was, yeah, I was talking to my husband the other day and I said, it's so hard because everyone seems to have an agenda. So you don't know. It's gotten to the point now where I, it's so hard for me to vote for anybody because you don't know who to believe with anything because one person is saying, this is what I, this is what my platform is. And then the other person is calling the other one a liar. And then that person is saying, well, this is what I, and so We've it's- reached a point now where people don't even say what their agenda is yeah. other than this person is bad. Yeah. The worst president ever. <laughs> that, that's, that's not how you should, that's not yeah. how rational people should make decisions. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough. Is there a way back? Do you think there's a way back for us? There is a way back, but people have to be willing to actually spend time together and decide that they want to solve problems rather than just be in charge and make the other person bad. So Craig, can I ask you? Your, my final question for the day for you is what does America mean to you? You know, America for all its warts and zits and <laughs> problems and broken things is the greatest gig on earth. It's the greatest social experiment ever started. And I guess I really didn't appreciate that until I went other places and saw how other people live. You know, I remember going like to Bahrain and the people that worked on the mall lived on top of the mall because they couldn't afford to live anywhere else. And Dance? well, yeah, and cardboard shacks and wow. whatever that, whatever they could erect up there. Wow. And you know, their biggest sort of source of running water was the condensate from air conditioners up there, best as we could tell or what they hauled up there themselves. I mean, uh, I saw people in Puerto Rico literally living in tin shacks that were, that didn't have running water. I mean, horrible, horrible uh, poverty when I visited the Philippines. And it's interesting. Uh, let me tell you a conversation I had one day. I was in Toulon, France when I was a young guy. 
I was probably 30. And this Frenchman came up to me and he said, you Americans should probably be much better to us French. I said, you're probably right, but tell me why. He said, because we gave you your country. And I said, well, that's true, but I think we've returned that favor. We gave you your country back from the Germans twice. <laughs> there I was course invited to get out, but <laughs> just because you're right doesn't make you correct. We've repaid the favor. <laughs> we've repaid the favor. You know, but no other country in the world has done as much for other people without an actual benefit to themselves other than knowing that you help someone else. Both world wars, we sent all kinds of people overseas to stop, fa stop fascism and, you know, stop the Nazis and just all these, the Germans the first time around too. And, you know, we sent our resources, we sent our people, and we forgave most of the debt from the countries that we helped. We helped set up their governments, helped them get back on their feet, made them industrial powerhouses, traded with them. And we really didn't gain anything physically for that. We didn't take it in land from anybody. We didn't take any additional debt for somebody. We didn't, we helped the world get back on its feet twice. And other countries have actually come out and said that, you know, for as much as they, they laugh at some of our shenanigans over here, you know, and you Americans are crazy and you're awful and you're this and that. And if you have an honest conversation with someone and say, where would the world be without us? Their story is a little different. And I got to contribute to that. And I'm really proud of it. And I'm really proud of my family history in that. And I don't know. I think it's a bunch of middle-class people who went to college and got ideas in America was bad, but have never had to sacrifice for anybody else who are the ones that are creating most of the problems right now. And it's a shame. That's sad. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for your service to our country. Oh, it's my honor to serve and I would do it again tomorrow if I were physically able. I loved it. And I love America. Warts and all. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your American story. Thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. Friend. Isn't Craig a hoot? Oh my goodness, that man is funny. He is so real, and I am always very honored when I can get people of his caliber to come and share their American story with us. If you want more American history, please join our Facebook group at American History, Our Heroic Journey. And please share this podcast with friends and family, and make sure you subscribe. I will be taking next week off for Christmas, but I will be back the last week in 2020 to share another American story. See you then.